My goodness. Welcome back to what it's like being a preacher's kid. Well, you may not know what it's like, but maybe you're curious as hell about it. Today I want to delve into the psychological repercussions of being raised as a PK. All right, got the Wilt Boys lining up in the choir loft. They're going to sing for us right now. Like I said, psychological repercussions. I tend to mingle with these at social events. Matter of fact, I kind of enjoy it. But man, when it came to forming intimate relationships with another, I had a terrible time with it. I say terrible because the other had a more terrible time with it than I did. Okay. Well, let's get it on here. Here we go. I had come to view myself since adolescence as a social misfit. And spiritually, I was all dried up by the time I started college. It seemed, here's the true dread of it all. I had found personal refuge in my dwelling place on what had been a shitty little island and I was learning to like it there since I felt I couldn't function normally. Burl Ives once narrated a TV Christmas special called The Island of Misfit Toys. It was back in 1964. The island's inhabitants were rejects that didn't meet quality control in toy maker shops. The toys were mistakes. A train with square wheels. The jack-in-the-box misnamed Charlie. And the doll, however, who appears perfectly normal except for the tragic flaw of low self-esteem placed her on the island of Misfit Toys. I particularly identified with that doll. I liked my Misfit Island. I looked forward to waking up there. I would write my poems there. I'd smoke tobacco there. I would read my books there. I would even read the Bible too, trying to make life-changing sense of it as I did with the other books on my shelf. My island space became a refuge at the still point of a churning world. Nothing and no one bothered me when I retreated to that island, a veritable no man's land of it. It may have looked like a great war battleground, unlike the island of misfit toys. But nobody or anything bothered me there. And I learned to like it, despite the craters of mud and noxious fumes rising from them. Although I lived in the great wasteland, I felt safe there. And no wonder then, after my 
all-star, honorable high school years, I withdrew from participating in any extracurricular activities on the Christian college campus, but certainly stepped up my participation of, in those of off-campus forbidden ones. Drinking, gambling, smoking pot, when we get it, and cigarettes. Playing rock and roll, sitting with a girl in the dark. I began making a lot of friends that way. Sadly, maybe that it had to happen under those circumstances, I know. But friends who accepted me unconditionally and who, by the way, had no problems with their religion and personal beliefs. Wish I could have said the same about me. They were also very interested in books, rock and roll, movies, and other branches of the arts. We talked a lot. My social life expanded without the church stifling it. But I still didn't give up <clears throat> my residential retreat on the island of Wasteland. I not only lived on that island, but had chained myself to it keep from getting washed away and pulled out to sea during the emotional tsunamis of my life. This attachment to a purgatorial island between the church and the world made it nearly impossible, I believe, to maintain an intimate relationship with women whose company I so desired in decades following college, I clomped my way through three marriages, each a fiasco. I had no business in the institution of marriage, as much as I desired and respected it. I never cheated on any girlfriend or spouse. I only cheated them by hanging on to my wasteland residence between the inner spiritual and outer worlds. The peace of mind and soul I wanted dearly was not mine to have, evidently. I felt damned. I tried selling my soul to the devil one night, but the devil rejected me. I didn't believe in the devil after that. I saw myself under damnation of God, not the devil's. Well, I did try to be born again, like my parents and other born-againers urged me to do. I prayed through the path of salvation as outlined on every one of those Christian tracts my dad handed out to toll booth collectors. First, admit that I was a sinner. Next, apologize to God and ask forgiveness. Then, ask Jesus Christ to enter my heart. I wanted to be a joyous Christian. I wanted to be normal and accepted by the church and my parents. I wanted my life to miraculously take a turn for the better as had been promised by evangelical acquaintances. It just plain didn't work for me. My anger against the church and its devoted members deepened until it glowed like hot coal in my soul. 
finally in one anguish prayer in my room in the cellar of my parents' house. I tried praying on my knees one last impassioned prayer, begging God to rub my nose in the dirt of worldly experience. That was the last personal prayer I ever said on my knees. I felt so naive being a pastor's kid and all that. Now I wanted knowledge of the outer world of sinners. Not long after that prayer, I started smoking cigarettes and smoking pot. I learned to drink and suffer through terrible hangovers. I attended nightclubs and other dens of iniquity. I swore oaths of blasphemy to God. The intimacy I longed for with woman did not come easily for me, but I worked at it just the same, with heartbreaking results. Well, as they say, sometimes our prayers go unanswered. Yep. Once my habitation in no man's land was secured, intellectual pursuits drove me to Boston where I lived independently and where I distanced myself from the church without worry about what anyone would think. I only crossed the threshold of a church a couple times there, and that was at the AME Church in Roxbury. I also attended a pipe organ concert at the Trinity Square Church, and in the chapel on Harvard campus I attended a Sunday morning service to hear a sermon by Northrop Fry a renowned literary scholar and Episcopalian priest. He expounded for ten minutes on the topic of faith as the substance of things unseen, as stated in the book of Hebrews, chapter 11, verse 1. The Reverend Dr. Fry inspired me, actually, further in a series of lectures he delivered in an old historic hall much resembling a church sanctuary on the Harvard campus. I wanted to become a great scholar like him, although I'm not so sure about how he wound up in the ministry. <clears throat> so I, I enrolled at the new U of Massachusetts Boston campus to work on my master's degree in English literature. Completion of my studies there fueled my passion for literary scholarship, but that ambition waned after I had sent over 60 letters of application to colleges and universities for the job of English instructor. Nothing came of it, and I was faced with pursuing gainful employment to maintain my independent status. I did find employment working for a cleaning service in downtown Boston's Government Square District. I could walk to work from where I lived on the slummy backside of Beacon Hill. No, I should stop right here and I'd like to comment at this point on people's view of me as a hippie. Let's get this out of the way. It should be no surprise that I sympathized with the emergent hippie movement. 
I wanted to drop out of society and stand up for something like peace within and without. This inner peace and tranquility of the true hippie rarely entered my life, however. I was too angry and divided against myself. I could grow my hair long and grow a beard. I could wear wire-rimmed glasses and comfortable old clothing. I could rant against the superficiality of typical American life, but I never could become a part of what I regarded as true hippiedom. I could never find that comfort level within myself. Hippies to me were like bovines, feeding peacefully in grassy pastures. I felt more like a carnivore. I identified more with the renegade type people, especially those in the art world, John Cage, Bartok, Cubists, French Symbolists, Andy Warhol, and B-Poets. In that respect, Boston was the place for me, where I visited art museums for free on Sunday afternoons and attended numerous concerts, plays, and readings. New England Conservatory was nearby to my new apartment in the old Hotel Hemingway. I attended several avant-garde recitals there. There was a dim bar that smelled like kerosene around the corner where students from Berkeley gathered to play jazz. While enrolled in graduate studies, okay, back to graduate school, I found a poetry group that met every Saturday afternoon around the corner. I met members there who shared interests similar to mine. Eventually, we formed a coalition and published a monthly poetry magazine. We performed at poetry readings and musical events around the city. We were a jovial lot, we were, and took small overnight trips to the Berkshires on weekends. Oh boy, once we had to walk back to our home in Cambridge after the subways had shut down for the night. We'd been drinking and smoking dope. We were a boisterous crew that night during the long walk home that wound along the north bank of the Charles River. Between Central Square and Harvard Square, we spied a rowboat tied loosely to the side of a narrow waterway. The night weighed dark and heavy over the water surface which was nearly invisible in the dark, except for the few reflections of light from the street. Suddenly Ed stopped, started tugging at his beard, and whirled around to pose the question, Hey! Why don't we take that boat out? Ron and Mary thought it might be fun. All of fear fell over me as I envisioned our group herding into the boat and paddling drunkenly upstream toward home, laughing and all excited. Then when someone stands to trade seats or take the oar, the boat lurches violently to one side and we plunge into the deep water and drown. In rational thought, there was strong probability in favor of this happening. I pictured myself sinking then in my intoxicated state, losing sense of what was up and what was down. 
Therefore, I stepped back and declined to join them and swayed them finally against the pr proposed action without having to mention that the boat belonged to someone and that we'd be stealing. We looked out for each other, we did. My chums and I were kind of like a church body of a new kind. Either way, I still unconsciously clung to that island which was shaping into the cone of a dormant volcano whose fire pushed up undetected under the bending bedrock of my consciousness. And that intruded, I believe, into the church body and wound up with me splitting off and migrating back to my home in western New York. The decision to leave Boston was based on an intimate relationship gone awry once again. I had seriously hurt the feelings of one in favor of the other. The one was an unorthodox Jew and the other Christian. Why I left one for the other had much to do, I believe, with my seclusion between both worlds. The spiritual core of my being was drying up as long as I remained in no man's land. I had become numb to that innerness of the others in my life, and I didn't know it. I knew not love within myself. How then could I pass the love on to significant others in my life's journey? <laughs> I was gone for too long on that island and had not developed healthy per interpersonal skills there, obviously. Consequently, I ended up in relationships where I couldn't keep my end of the bargain because I never paid attention to what the bargain was. After being smothered with verbal and emotional abuse over the duration of my last marriage, I finally broke free of the personal island. I did. The divorce helped loosen the chains that bound me there and opened the way back into the world again with my feet on solid ground, off island. It was a big jump, but I landed where I was supposed to be. I stopped fighting then and learned the reward of accepting things as they occurred, events and people. I began to realize that I was not as subnormal as I thought anymore, and if anything, perhaps a little abnormal, but that was okay with me. I always wanted to be different. Okay, hit it. Yes, go ahead, hit it, boys. Well, there you have it. Better idea of what a fundamentalist preacher's kid can go through. Zadikus Finch told his daughter Scout to kill a mockingbird. You gotta walk around in other people's shoes for a while to get to know them. I'm thinking about sharing an episode with you in the very near future about the kind of recurring nightmare a PK like me experienced. Don't have much now though, and I'm glad for that. Okay, good to have you drop in today.
May you find your way, my friend. May you find your way. Thanks for listening. Some poor fate is struggling.